Well, happy Easter. We're glad uh, that you are here with us, joining us. Uh, you know, we passed out a flyer this time around for Easter, uh, just asking this question, why come to church? And all kinds of studies are done. This is one of the most recent ones that was done, just on asking people who have funding and time to ask people questions. I mean, get some stats together to say, why do you go to church? Why do you come to church? And uh, really, the answers are really wide and varied of why people come to church. And I think the answers are wide and varied as to why people avoid church. Uh, If you don't know, the majority of people in America don't go to church. An even greater majority don't go to church in the Silicon Valley. So if you're sitting in here, even on an Easter Sunday, you are in somewhat the minority for for being here. Here are just a a couple of the things. 43% across denominational lines and ages and all that kind of thing, uh, it kind of boils down to this. 43%, that's a pretty giant number, say to be closer to God. The reason I come to church is to be closer to God. And then they also ask the other question of why do you not go to church? Um, and really that boils down to I don't think it's needed. It's either not relevant or, or I'll find it elsewhere. The church isn't necessary for me to do that. There's all kinds of stats. Uh, maybe it boils down to something like this. April 15th is coming up, a very celebrated holiday here uh, in our land. Um, it's my daughter's birthday. Uh, but beyond that, it's tax day, right? And maybe it boils down to this. Do you look forward to tax day or do you dread tax day? The answer might lie in this. Do you think that you're getting something or do you think that you are having to give something that you don't want to give away? I think that might be somewhat the crux of the matter when it comes to church. Am I going to have to give something out of duty that I don't want to give away? Or am I getting something? Am I, am I receiving something? Interestingly, the passage we're looking at today is a tax man in church. So you see how I wove that together? April 15th, tax, church. All right, here we go. If these stats were specific to the Silicon Valley, I think that um, perhaps people don't come to church in part because of its sheer inefficiency. We live in an increasingly ADH squirrel society, right? Where people, we cannot focus on one thing for very long. And so people come to church, they want it, just give me it in bullet points. Like, just, just lay it on me. So here is kind of the heart of the artichoke. It's the Easter story in one verse, okay? We're not going to turn there, but you can jot this down if you're taking notes. Uh, It's found in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. You don't have to turn there. I'm so efficient, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Here is the Easter story in one verse. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's the Easter story. You want to know why people come to church and celebrate? This is what people are talking about. This is what Christians around the world today are discussing and talking about. One verse. Now, you might still be sitting there going, that's great. I actually know those events, or I've kind of heard shades of that. But what does it mean? That still doesn't necessarily make it relevant to me. What do I do with that information? Very next verse, Jesus lays out the Christian faith and lifestyle in a few words. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here is your Easter sermon in a few minutes. Okay, here it is. Notice the word all. The invite goes out far and wide to all nations. It's a wide open invitation. If anyone, 
The choice is yours. To become a Christian or not is completely voluntary. Come after me. It's an invitation to walk like Christ. If you notice in this one verse, there's an if-then thing going on, meaning there are conditions. If this, then this. So if anyone would come after me, and here are the conditions, deny himself. It's not about me and mine. It's not about what I can do to God, for God. It's not what I bring to the table for God. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. You don't live for God until you die to yourself. Jesus made it really clear that suffering is involved in being a Christian. You may have been watching the news. 147 Christians, it's being reported, have been killed in Kenya. Now, this isn't unique to Kenya, is it? This is happening widespread around the world. This isn't shocking to Christians. Sobering, but it's not shocking. This hits a little closer to home for Neighborhood Bible Church. Last summer, we said goodbye to some very dear friends, members of this church, who have brought their family over to Nairobi, Kenya. Why? To follow Jesus to go as he did to serve other people. I got a text from Kirk this morning. All is well there. You know what he asked for prayer? He says, pray for peace. Pray for the people involved in all sides of this. That's what Christians do. They pray for their enemies and they pray for those being persecuted. So we can remember those in Kenya this morning. Jesus laid it out. Take up your cross. And then he says this, follow me. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ. It's to follow the leader. If I could sum up the whole Christian life, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's these two words. Follow me. It's Jesus saying, follow me. You get this down, you get the whole other package. Everything else kind of comes with it. All right, there it is. That's an Easter miracle. There's your Easter sermon, all efficient, all, you know, packed into a couple of minutes. Now, the invitation to follow me is that there's so much more than just that. We like things compact. We like things in little sound bites. But a lot of times, reality takes time. There's more to unpack. There's more to discuss. So here's my invitation to you. You're welcome to check out. You could have checked out in the first 30 seconds, right? You're welcome to check out now because you've gotten the heart of the Easter message. But for the rest of you that would want to, I invite you to come and follow me. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at a passage that isn't a very typical Easter passage per se, but it deals with some things we're going to uh, discover about Jesus. Luke chapter 18, we'll be looking at verse 9. So why do people go to church? One of the foundational reasons, one of the fundamental reasons is to pray. Praying is one of the most simple things to start. Kids, you're in here with us. How many of you know how to pray? Raise your hand. You do. It's just not hard to start praying. You know what's difficult? It's difficult to continue in prayer. It's difficult to really nurture your prayer life. I've got some kind of spiritual giants in my life that have kind of mentored me. I don't think I've ever met a person who says, yeah, I've arrived in prayer. I'm there. Done. Not learning anything new at all. There's always a deepening and a yearning that goes on with it. You ask people, hey, are you, are you a person of prayer? I've had a wide variety of, of responses to this from, oh, yes, absolutely. Some people are more like this. Ah, it can't hurt. You know, let's give it a shot. Uh, and some, if you ask, you know, can I pray for you? They say, get away from me, you freak. Like, you know, stay away. I don't want you praying for me or touching me or talking about prayer at all. 
There's kind of the wide gamut, but most people are open to prayer, right? Even if it's undefined. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of prayer, maybe before meals, maybe in church, maybe right before or in the middle of a test, right? Prayer kind of stirs up different things for us. I want you to touch your arm for a moment. Just touch your arm. Don't touch your neighbor's arm. That'll freak him out. We are all made of stuff we can see and then a whole bunch of stuff we can't see. And there's this whole vast internal world to us that we can't see. Some of those are our internal organs, but there's something else. It's often called the soul or the spirit. It's that part of us that's it's very much a part of us of who we are, but we can't really touch it or feel it or even quantify it. Prayer is the language of this internal self, the soul. It's really a stretching of your spiritual muscle when you pray. It's developing an attentiveness to God. And if we know anything about Jesus, one of the things we could definitely call him is a man of prayer. So to be a Christian, to follow after Jesus, we would do well to discover what it means to be a person of prayer, a man or woman child of prayer. We're in the middle of a series called Red Words, and it's just looking at the stories and the sermons of Jesus. And like little kids who love to break open a book because it's story time, we come Sunday after Sunday with eager anticipation to hear directly from the words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. It's been an incredible series. In a sermon, Jesus taught us how to pray. We looked at this a few weeks ago. You can listen to the podcast if you want. It's often called the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, he lays out a couple of things. He says, don't pile up words. Don't perform in your prayer so that you somehow get applause, you know, applause from people. That's a silly reason to pray. And don't really think that it's about your eloquence or your ability in prayer. That's not what prayer is all about. You're missing all of that. And then he gives some instructions of what we should do. Now, all we have to go on is the Gospels. None of us were there walking with Jesus, but... If we were to take the Gospels and have to make an educated guess about Jesus' favorite way of teaching, it wouldn't be sermons. It would be stories. There's so many more stories that Jesus told than sermons that he gave. And in stories about prayer, you know what he does? He doesn't teach us how to do it. He doesn't walk through mechanics of it. He invites us into prayer. It's kind of what a story does. A story invites participation. A story kind of awakens your imagination, right? And all of a sudden, you kind of find yourself identifying with characters. That's what a good story does. And Jesus was a master storyteller by any account. Now, unlike what many of us think, prayer is really quite ordinary and accessible. There's a certain context to the story that we're going to look at. So I want to tell you about a couple of other stories he told in preparation for the story we're going to look at. Jesus compares prayer to a couple of things. In Luke chapter 11, just a few chapters earlier than what we're looking at, he compares it to a friend going next door to borrow bread. Now, there's nothing really mystical or special about that, right? It's not the idea of prayer to be used only in case of emergency, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I guess now I better pray. A friend going next door is just a basic everyday act of hospitality. Hey, I've got people. I'm out of supplies. Can you help me out? Jesus takes this common, ordinary act of hospitality and he likens it to prayer. There's another one. He tells about a widow. And she doesn't lose heart 
when asking for justice. This is found just a few verses before what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 18. In this story, Jesus kind of reframes what we often call from our perspective unanswered prayers. Unanswered prayers are what? Things that we're praying about that there seems to be absolutely no answer to yet, right? Jesus takes unanswered prayer and he kind of reframes it in this story of a widow who keeps asking and asking. He tells about a judge and the judge in the story is the exact opposite of God. He's really nothing like God in any way. And what Jesus says is even this judge, even though he's nothing like your heavenly father, even this judge will act and move on her behalf for justice. Delay often dissuades us from continuing. We begin to lose heart. We begin to wonder, God, are you even there? Do you care? Do you hear me? Are you able? If you've asked those questions, welcome to the journey. That's part of it, right? But in this story, Jesus invites us. In fact, he beckons us to keep praying and not lose hope, but to keep on praying. If this evil judge is engaged, how much more so God? God is working in your life right now, so be faithful in prayer. Keep on asking. Keep on going to the judge and crying out for justice like this widow. And now we come to this third story where prayer is the central activity. There's a ton of stories about prayer in the Bible, and so it gives me the indication that prayer must be really important to God. By sheer repetition, we can see that. The setting for this story is it's in the temple. It's in a church, essentially. Many people confine prayer to church or sacred space, but you don't get this from Jesus. That's not the teaching he gave. Most all of his stories are set in everyday life, on the road, at meals, in places of business. To kind of put it in our vernacular, it's in our kind of Monday through Saturday, not our Sunday. Jesus takes prayer and kingdom living and kingdom life and he just puts it all through our week. Not that God is confined to an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Who are the people? There's two people with similarities and some differences. Look at verse 9. Probably the most important thing to enter into this story and really understand what Jesus is talking about is Luke gives us this, this little eyewitness uh, tid- tidbit account in, in verse 9. It says this. He also told this parable. Catch this to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you hear the division? They were righteous and others with contempt. Who did they trust in? They trusted in themselves. Now, all communication has body language with it, right? Facial gestures, hand gestures, kind of body position, stance, all of that. Research tells us that that's actually a really hugely important part of communication. One of the hard things about reading the Gospels is we don't have a lot of that. I think what Dr. Lucas, he put this in there, is he's giving some indication of what the body language might have been like a little bit. Because here's the audience who he was directing this to. He tells this next story to people trusting in themselves for their own righteousness. Now, Kids, did you know that you were going to be interviewed for the improv today? Do you have any idea what being interviewed for the improv means? It doesn't matter. Here's what's going to happen. I need 
I need kids on this side of the room, and this is totally voluntary. If your heart's pounding and you don't want to do this now, don't do it. But if you would like to, I need you to stand up and kind of move to the aisles on both sides, and a couple of you could come up front. I'm just going to have you act out a few different things that are going to kind of get to give us a little a picture of this. Now, I'm not going to define kids, so if you think you're a kid and you like doing this or you've always wanted to interview for the improv and they won't let you, now's your shot. So some of you just stay right in the, in the aisleways and a couple of you up front facing this way, okay? All right, so here's what we got. Now, I need two distinct groups. Uh, if you were sitting on this side, kind of nudge over here, okay? If you were sitting on this side, guess what I'm going to ask you to do? Yeah, kind of nudge over here. Now, I don't want you facing me. I want you to face the rest of the people, okay? That's part of what the improv does, so you can see them. These are some shy children, I can tell. Um, all right, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of similarities between these two people. One of the laziest things we can do in a story is to just make a flat character and kind of stereo, stereotype them and leave them all in one thing. Um, a Pharisee, by the way, just so you can kind of get it, you guys over here are going to be my Pharisees, okay? A Pharisee is like a religious scholar. He's really smart, okay, and he knows things a lot, but he struggles with pride somewhat, okay? And you guys over here, you're the tax man, okay? A tax man, by default, is doing a job, listen, that's really wrong. He's robbing people legally by his job, okay? That's what a tax man does. That, that's what he's doing, okay? Um, all right, so here is, here is the first thing. You guys have some things that are similar about you, both a tax person and a Pharisee, okay? Here's the thing that's similar. You are both sinners in need from God. The, the Pharisee's pride is going to be on display in the story, and the tax man's sin almost is worn like a label because of what he does. His sin is right there and evident. So here's what I want you to do you are going to do something like this. Like, to sin just means you did something wrong, like you missed the mark, right? So you go like this. You take your fingers. Who can snap? And you're going to go like this. You go, ah, oh, shucks. Okay? That's like a 1950s thing for bummer, okay? So you take your arm. You just go, oh. Or you could go, oh, man, or something like that, okay? So face, face your people, and on the count of three, you're going to do it. And you can stand up and do it, too. You can do it right in place. You don't have to come up. All right, here we go. One, two, three. All right, so you guys are both sinners. Here's the other thing. You're both, both the tax man and the Pharisee, you guys are both coming to God in prayer, okay? So what does it look like for a Pharisee to come to church? You think he gets pretty fancied up, right? Straightens his tie, makes sure his hair looks good. Well, how does a tax man come to, to church? He wants to take, make sure all his money is really well hidden. He doesn't want it in sight because he doesn't want to, like, ooze the fact that he's taken a bunch of money from people, okay? So do that. One Two, three. Show it to the people. Don't show it to me. I know what's going on. Show it out there. There we go. We got improv going on. How are we doing? She's crossing her fingers for good luck. I like that. Okay. Here's the third way that you're similar. Ready? You are both seeking to be justified. The word justified, it's more than being forgiven. When you do something wrong, sometimes your parents say, ask for forgiveness, right? That's like pardon. But justified even is more than that. It's being found totally made right. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your arm like this. Take your other arm like this. It spells a T, but that's not what we're going for. We're going for a scale, okay? Your scale's kind of tipping like this. Watch this, ready? And then on the count, uh, at some certain point, you're going to go, bam! Because you're found, you're found okay. That's what you're looking for. You're, made, you're, you're on the scale, right? And you want to be made to be found good, okay? You guys going to do that? Tax people, you got to face the audience. Pay attention. Here we go. There you go. Okay, get over here. On the count of three, you guys scale it and then... Bam, the A-OK, go. 
All right, give it up for our helpers. All right, go sit down. You either trust in yourself or you trust in God to be justified. You either trust in yourself or you trust in God. Let me read Luke chapter 18. I'll start in verse 10. Remember who he's telling the story to. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 13 highlights the fact that Jesus is really trying to show us a difference. Here's one, the Pharisee, but the tax collector. There's kind of the dividing line. Here's the two people he's pointing out. What are the differences? There's different approaches to God through prayer. And we're going to look at two things, their stance and their words. And they're going to tell us a lot about it. First, their stance. There's a certain praying protocol, right? Some people, when they think of prayer, thanks to a football player, now think of Tebowing, right? This was big about two years ago, and everyone was Tebowing, and they thought, well, this is the stance of prayer. There is a certain stance of prayer, and our actions indicate it's time to pray now. We're going to pray now. Around my house, here's what we knew. Before we were going to get to eat some food, we had to pray. So if you were really hungry, you were proactive in this, and you bowed your heads and folded your hands to hurry up the process, right? This meant we are going to pray now, right? No matter where you go, if, if you walk into a church and people start, but you'll know by their stance, there's kind of a, a protocol. I guess we're, we're, we're going to pray now. Jesus makes a point of highlighting what their bodies are doing because body language, stance, says something. These two were at opposite ends of the social and spiritual scale. And you can kind of see it in their stance, can't you? One's standing up and the other one is off in the corner, cowering. Now the Pharisee standing is not really prideful in and of itself. Standing was a common stance for prayer. So it's not so much that naturally you see him standing and you think he's standing up to pray. That, that, that's actually a fairly common thing. What I want you to catch is this. He's familiar with protocol. He knows what it is to walk into the temple and to pray. He's a religious scholar. He's comfortable here. This is what he does. He's close to God in the sense of knowing what to do and how to act in church. The tax man, on the other hand, is standing far off. He didn't presume. He wasn't in the know. He kind of inched toward the edge probably thinking, I'm not even supposed to be here, but I've got to get, what, close to God. So he kind of cowers in the shadows and kind of comes just close enough. It says he dared not even look up, beating his chest, man, he was sorrowful, he was repentant. One slumped in the shadows, the other standing invisible. How about their words? Pharisee displays self-centered gratitude 
Think about that. Self-centered gratitude. And then what else does he do? He goes on to review, maybe kind of to remind God of his credentials. His fasting and his tithing were both beyond what the law required. Do you think this really fools God? This must fool God about as much as an interviewer is fooled when they ask the question, tell me about some of your weaknesses. Now, I was taught, I think in high school, about how to interview. And they said, take that question about your weaknesses and turn it into strengths. And I thought, I don't think that's really going to fool anyone. So when they ask about your weaknesses, what are you supposed to say? Well, (laughs) I tend to work too hard. All my friends say I'm over-reliable. You know, my visionary ideas are really ahead of their time, so I have a struggle to really live in the present and not reveal too much too soon. If you're ever pulling that trick and the interviewer is writing a lot of notes, stop smiling, okay? Here's what they're writing. They're writing, okay, so you are prideful, you woefully lack self-awareness, you are evasive and deceptive. That's what they're writing, I mean, it's not like they don't know that trick, right? They're not going, wow, even his weaknesses sound a lot like strengths. This must be a little bit like what it is to come to God and in grateful gratitude be thankful for ourselves and our achievements and all the things we're doing for God. The tax man, on the other hand, voices what he believes is his only play. You know what it is? Begging for mercy. He's got one card to play and he's throwing it down. Mercy, that's it. That's my only play. Jesus said elsewhere that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Two prayers reveal two different hearts. Two different ways of relating to God. Just as people can say I'm married, and being married can mean a lot of different things, so it is when someone says I'm a Christian, or I'm spiritual, or I'm a person of prayer. It can mean a wide range of things. If you want to know about what it means for someone to be married and what their marriage is like, you know what you do? You watch and you listen. Watch their body language and listen to the words that are being said. Be attentive to how they relate. My wife and I did a lot of premarital counseling, and part of our role as we saw it was to watch and listen and be attentive to this couple and, and mentor them. We, didn't, we told them up front, this was going to be a little bit more like boot camp. It's going to hurt a little bit. We're going to ask very difficult questions that you won't be asked in any other setting um, because we've, we value the, the institution of marriage. We want this to be for a lifetime. And sometimes as you watch couples relate, um, sometimes there's an over-affection. There's, there's, a, um, there, there's, a, there's a body language that on first glance you would look at and say, oh, they're so in love. They're so close. But on further investigation, as you watch them, you realize, man, they're reaching. They're trying to muster up closeness, and it's not real affection. It's a nervous energy to try and, like, make up for lack somewhere. There's other couples that come in, and they don't sit just right next to each other like sometimes premarriage couples do. Um, They're not at the opposite ends of the couch, but they're just sitting there, and there might be an initial response that looks like, huh, Maybe there's not a lot of closeness, but what you realize in the end is you go, wow, there's just a ton of ease and comfort with these two. So so you see how just the words wouldn't give the whole picture, just the body language wouldn't give the whole picture, but you take those together and you can see things. You want to know what it is to be married. You watch the people. You watch them. How do they feel about their spouse? It's going to come out in in their body language and in their mouth. So it is with God. Our stance and our words say a lot. 
Here's a question for you. Do you use God to appreciate yourself? Or do you use all that you are to appreciate God? Huge difference with those two, right? When you come to God in prayer, do you see God as a demanding boss who needs reminding of all the reasons he should not fire you? So you bring up all your accomplishments and kind of remind God of that? Or do you see him as a loving, benevolent father who not only can but will uh, provide blessing and guidance and direction for you, even if it seems kind of hard at the time? Huge difference in how you relate to God in prayer. The biggest similarity for these two is they're both sinners in need of God. They both needed help. The biggest difference, one was honest, the other one was dishonest. It's that simple. You don't know who's sitting in church today, not just in our church, but around the nation and world. Here it is. It's honest and dishonest sinners. That's who's sitting in churches today. The honest and the dishonest. The stance and the words aren't the only difference. The results also vary. Look at the results. The results, the tax man goes away justified, meaning made right in God's sight. The Pharisee remains unjustified, liable for the penalty of his sin, trapped in performance. Look what Jesus does in verse 14. It says this, Everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is giving us the keys on how to relate to God. Here is what is absolutely vital in relating to God. Humility and honesty. Humility and honesty. How this must have landed on the first audience hearing the story. Who's he talking to? Talking to those who trust in themselves and do what? They look down their noses at the commoners who don't know protocol. This is the audience Jesus tells the story to. You either trust in yourself or you trust in God to be made right, to be justified. Trusting in self requires a couple of things. It requires a standard other than a holy God. So you know what the person does? He uses other people. That's what the Pharisee is doing right here in the story. This is so common. Think about the argument you had last about your favorite sports team with another sports team. Uh, If that's not your thing, politics, education, your smartphone, your car, whatever. It's not a comparison to perfection, but it's a putting down of others to prop up. It often involves language like this. Oh, yeah? Well, at least my team isn't. Oh, yeah? Well, at least our candidate isn't. Oh, yeah? Well, my smartphone can at least do... mm. What are we doing? We're not comparing to some standard of perfection. We're comparing around and we're putting other things down to kind of prop up. Now, here's the fascinating thing about all that. When that comes to our own life and our own sin, our own junk, we can kind of shut the mouths of other people sometimes in an argument by using that technique. But you know what never quiets down? Our conscience. Our conscience laying in our bed at night as we think through the good we ought to be doing that we're not, and the evil that we are doing that we shouldn't be doing, that voice doesn't quiet down by that silly argument of comparison. So that's one thing that trusting in self requires. The second thing it requires, quite simply, is lying. Dodging hard truths that won't go away. We know that others, uh, that looking down on others um, doesn't change things. 
So we put polite words on it, like dodging the question, steering, blame shifting, all kinds of things. But at its core, we're just kind of lying to ourselves. What does trusting God require? It requires humility. It's not just bowing your head, but it's bowing your heart. Jesus says that people come as a child into the kingdom or not at all. Kids, how many of you have your resume on you? Anyone have a resume with them? (laughs) Business card? Any business cards for the kids? You know what? You ask a kid, hey, what do you do? And they'll give you just kind of a funny look, right? They'll go, I eat, I dance, I climb, I pick my nose sometimes when no one's looking, I, you know, I sing, I do all kinds of things. What do you mean, what do I do? There's not a lot of pride in that. They, they just are who they are. They're not looking for a title to hand you back and impress you. They're not going to name off their position at their work and how big or small their company is or whether they're traded on the stock exchange, right? Come as children, Jesus says, into the kingdom, or you don't come at all. Humility is essential. The second thing is needed is honesty. I would say coming clean. Coming clean is a really interesting term. Coming clean means being honest about something you've been lying about. Hey, just come clean, right? People get that confused. They think, I can't come to church until I come clean, meaning i got to clean myself up, and then I'll come into church. That's foolishness. You'll never come. You ought to come to church to come clean, to start being honest about things that you've been lying about in the past. So really it means come dirty, but just be truthful about it so you can get cleaned up. Humbling yourself before the judge and taking your card out, the one that you have, and slapping it down. Cry mercy. Mercy, judge. That's it. That's my only play. I'm going to come clean. I've been trying to review my resume with you for a long time. What about you? Who are you trusting in to justify? Some of you in this room are familiar with prayer and church and how to relate with God. And this all feels very normal to you. Spiritual disciplines are important to you. You are trying to live a life pleasing to God. Others of you are far off. You're uncomfortable with this whole thing. Welcome. Glad you're here. If you're honest and your body language was saying what you were feeling inside, you'd be sitting right back there in that corner and in that corner waiting for the exit time. Welcome. You know what Jesus does in the story? Kind of takes us all, puts us, puts us in the same boat. The man's going to sing a song called Someone Worth Dying For. And someone worth dying for has nothing to do with our goodness and everything to do with God's goodness. Jesus' entire life pointed to the day that he died. It was why he came. His goodness toward you and his goodness toward me is inextricably linked to the events around Easter, to his death. The book of 1 John puts it this way. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the payment. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You want to know the part we play? Here it is. We receive the word. Just like you'd receive a gift, you open your hand, you open your heart, and you receive the word. You trust. That's how grace comes to you through faith. There's a choice sitting before every one of us today and every day, and that is to follow or not. Look again at the passage I opened up with. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Suffer, be rejected, kill. Catch this so that you don't have to. 
That's the gospel. That's the hope of Easter. And raised so that you can be. And then in verse 22, he says this quite simply, follow me. Thank you.